Hey everyone, and welcome to Be The Leader You Deserve podcast, where my mission is to inspire you to ask yourself, are you the leader you deserve? Hi, I'm Jill Handley, and I am so excited to be here with you today. This is season six, episode five, the core components of self-compassion. Which ones do you possess? Well, welcome to the new year, you know, a time when we declare resolutions, we establish new boundaries, and we work on solidifying new habits. We know that whenever we start something new, we are often our own worst critic. So last week, I began talking with you about a need that we as leaders have, yet often lack in our quest for achievement, perfection, and badassery. Yep, that something is self-compassion. Now, last week we talked about negative self-talk and that that typically accompanies self-criticism, especially when we are low in the area of self-compassion. I shared my self-compassion assessment results with each of you, and I encourage you to take the assessment yourself. So I have to ask you, how did it go? Were you surprised? Probably not. For me, I wasn't surprised. Although I will say the numbers were a little bit higher than I was expecting, or should I say lower, whichever the bad way means, my self-compassion tank was even emptier than I had anticipated it being. So for me, I've not only made it one of my resolutions to develop more self-compassion, but I am now leaning towards making it my word, my one word for 2022. Now, if you've listened to any of my previous episodes, then you know that every year I choose a word that kind of sets the tone for my my goals and actions. And so I am really thinking that this year's word is going to be self-compassion. Like many of you, I've also worked on my vision board for 2022. And you better believe that the word self-compassion in big, bold letters is listed on there. Now, in the last episode, I also challenged you to pay attention to your internal dialogue, especially when things don't go as planned or when you're disappointed with the results of something that you attempted. And I challenged you to work on replacing your negative self-talk with more compassionate language. I'm going to ask again, how's that going? Well, today we are going to continue diving into the work of Dr. Kristen Neff as we talk about the core components of self-compassion and the benefits that we get from practicing self-compassion. Now, based on Dr. Neff's research, self-compassion is actually divided into three core components. Those are self-kindness, which is being gentle and understanding with ourselves rather than being harshly critical and judgmental. Two, common humanity, which is feeling connected with others in the experience of life rather than feeling isolated and alienated in our suffering. And three, mindfulness, holding our experiences as balanced awareness rather than ignoring our pain or exaggerating it. We must work to achieve and combine these three elements in order to be truly self-compassionate. All right, so let's get started by talking about self-kindness. Okay, let's face it. This is probably the element that we all struggle with the most. I mean, when you think about it, it kind of really seems absurd that self-kindness is the one that we struggle with the most, right? I mean, it's hard to be on any platform without seeing things like, in a world where you can be anything, be kind, 
or sprinkle kindness with confetti. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not bashing these quotes. You all know I'm a quote junkie, and I actually love both of these. However, the problem in this context is that we subscribe to that when we're talking about acts of kindness for other people, right? But what about ourselves? What about being kind to ourselves? I mean, somewhere along the line, we get this message that strong leaders should be stoic and silent in our, um, toward our own suffering. <laughs> How ridiculous, right? But true. Well, self-kindness requires us to understand our failures instead of condemning them. Let me repeat that. Self-kindness require us, requires us to understand our failures instead of condemning them. Yes, I'm talking to you who the moment that you fail at something, instead of trying to think like, hmm, what can I learn from this? Or, hey, that was a pretty good first go with that. You immediately jump into, man, I suck. This was horrible. I quit. I knew I wasn't going to be any good at that. You know I'm talking to. Yep, you. Well, self-kindness also requires us to actively comfort ourselves, responding to the way that we would to a dear friend in need. Self-kindness also allows us to be moved by our own pain instead of packing it down or ignoring it. It gives us the permission to say, you know what? This is really difficult right now. I mean, I'm hurting. I'm disappointed. I'm upset because blah, blah, blah. It causes us to ask, how can I care and comfort myself in a way that I would for someone else in the same situation? Now, as we work to change our critical self-talk, Dr. Neff references the work of Marshall Rosenberg, who authored the book, Nonviolent Communication, which by the way, I have not read. Now in his book, he discusses the importance of using sympathetic versus judgmental language when talking to ourselves. I'm gonna say that again. We've got to be transitioning, instead of being so judgy with ourselves, to being more sympathetic with ourselves. And so how do we do this? Well, he suggests that we ask ourselves four simple questions. The first one, what am I observing? Number two, what am I feeling? Number three, and this is a tricky one. Sometimes I can get the first two down, but the third one, sometimes I struggle with. What am I needing right now? And number four, Do I have a request for myself or for someone else? That one can get tricky too, particularly those of us who are working on saying no less to people who offer to help us. Okay, just so we can kind of wrap our heads around it, I'm going to read you the example from Dr. Neff's book, Um, and it's from page 52, and she says, for example, Let's say you're working from home and you take a break to make yourself some tea. I love hot tea. When you come into the kitchen, you see that there are dirty dishes piled up a mile high. I don't know about you, but I'm triggered already just envisioning this. The first step, remember the first one? What am I observing? It involves you noticing if your self-talk is critical or judgmental. Are you saying things like, oh, I'm such a hopeless slob? Hmm? The next step involves 
turning into the feelings underlying your harsh words. Are you feeling frustrated? Are you feeling overwhelmed? Are you feeling irritated with yourself or the situation? The third step entails examining the unmet needs driving your reaction. Perhaps you're frustrated because you know you need a sense of order to deal with the pressing demands of your work and that the chaos of the kitchen with your pressing demands of your work, oh, I'm sorry, and that that chaos of the kitchen is hindering you. I don't know about you, but in my main space, which a lot of times is my kitchen, if it's messy or disorganized, I cannot focus. I cannot work. So for me, a tidy space is really important for me to be productive so I can see how this one would have been triggering. So finally, you consider whether there is anything you want to request of yourself or someone else to meet your needs. Perhaps you can ask your best friend to lend a hand while you work on the deadline that you have for your work. Or maybe you can ask yourself to put off working on your project for half an hour so that you can clean up those dishes. And then you can have kind of that sense of harmony so you can concentrate. But the main point here is that you validate and listen to what you really need in the moment and express empathy towards yourself rather than condemnation. Do not get so judgy. And that's what I think a lot of us do. Jump to that inner critic of, oh, how did I let this happen? Be empathetic. And I've really been working on this. That self-compassion is just allowing yourself to be human. Maybe it's been a tough week. Maybe you planned on getting to the dishes, but something came up. Maybe you chose to give yourself a little bit of intentional you time, and that was okay. So how do we change our self-talk? Well, we talked a little bit about this in the last episode, but I am going to reiterate an exercise that Dr. Neff suggests to reprogram our inner self-critic. Okay, now before I share this, I know what some of you are going to think. You're going to say, Jill, this sounds too warm and fuzzy for me. Well, if you're saying that, that's probably because your inner self-critic is especially harsh. Maybe your inner critic is a total bitch to you. And the thoughts of reprogramming him or her feels very threatened, right? Okay, so I'm just asking you to trust this process. Now, while you can simply kind of play it out in your head, I'm going to encourage you to use that new journal that you purchased to write it down because writing it down can be really powerful because you can always go back later and reread and see how it played out. And if you journal often, you can look for patterns of your inner self-critic and rewire him or her. You know, speaking of new journals, I just got two more new journals as gifts. Oh, I love new journals and I'm so excited about them. Okay, so here we go. Are you ready? The first step toward changing the way you treat yourself is to notice when you are being self-critical. It may be that like many of us, your self-critical voice comes up so frequently that you don't even notice when it's present. Whenever you're feeling bad about something, think about what you've just said to yourself. Try to be as accurate as possible, noting that inner speech verbatim. What words do you actually use when you're being self-critical? Are there key phrases that come up over and over? What's the tone of your voice? Are you harsh? Are you cold? Are you angry? Does the voice remind you of anyone in the past who was critical of you? Hmm, that's a big one. You want to be able to get to know the inner self-critic very well and to become aware of when your inner judge is active. 
For instance, if you've just eaten half a box of Oreos, does your inner voice say something like, ugh, you're so disgusting, you make me sick, you pig? Hmm, get a real clear sense of how you talk to yourself. Even when it's really ugly, we know that we have to get it accurate before we, even when it's ugly. That's what I always say about anything. Even when the data is ugly, it's still informative. Brutal facts. We've got to face them. All right, so number two, once you've done all that, you've really gotten up close and personal with this self-critic to hear how he or she really treats you, and you've made note of that. Now you need to make an active effort to soften that self-critical voice, but do so with compassion rather than self-judgment. Instead of saying, (laughs) don't say, you're such a bitch to your inner self-critic. Say something like, (laughs) It's almost like she was talking to me because I think that's the way I would talk to my inner self-critic. But you might want to say something like, okay, I know you're trying to keep me safe and I know you're trying to point out ways that I need to improve, but your harsh criticism and judgment is not helping me. Please stop being so critical. You are causing me unnecessary pain. I know what you're thinking. Jill, are you really wanting me to have this dialogue with myself? Yes, I absolutely am. Now, perhaps this is going on in your head or Like me, maybe you're talking to yourself Um, or maybe you're journaling it, but it's important to rethink and play that out. And finally, reframe the observations made by your inner critic in a kind, friendly, positive way. Now, if you're having trouble thinking of what words to use, go back to what that kind, compassionate friend would say to you. For example, remember, instead of talking about how disgusted you were with those Oreos, Maybe you'd say something like, darling, I know you ate that bag of cookies because you're feeling really sad right now and you thought it would cheer you up, but now you feel even worse and you're not even feeling good about your body. I want you to be happy, so why don't you go take a long walk so you'll feel better? While engaging in the supportive self-talk, try gently stroking your arm or holding your face tenderly in your hands. Yeah, I know some of you are like, Jill, now you're going too far. But apparently, according to Dr. Neff, These acts of kindness to yourself actually generate feeling of warmth and caring and eventually follow. Why is it that you always think when people are struggling that people will say things like, do you need a hug? Can I give you a hug? Or things like that. Or come here. Um, I think about my my kids when they were little. Well, actually when they're big, I still want to say this. Um, Come here and cuddle. Let me just cuddle you. We know that that human interaction and that, that gift of touch often brings warmth. So why not give it to yourself? So again, if you're feeling, Jill, this is kind of hokey. This is just too warm and fuzzy for me. I'm pleading with you. Give it a try, even if it's in your journal and no one else knows that you're doing it. So Dr. Neff goes on to say, when faced with our human imperfections, we can either respond with kindness and care or with judgment and criticism. We've got two choices, y'all. We can't stop our judgmental thoughts, but we don't have to encourage or believe in them either. So I'm not saying that suddenly they're going to stop coming, but it's up to you to decide. Are you going to believe what your inner critic, the bitchy one says, or are you going to reprogram him or her to be more kind? Okay, next moving on. The second component of self-compassion that we talked about is common humanity, right? So many of you might be saying, what, is, what are you talking about? What's common humanity? 
It's, she says, when we're in touch with our common humanity, we remember that feelings of inadequacy and disappointment are shared by all. This is what distinguishes self-compassion from self-pity. Self-compassion honors the fact that all human beings are fallible, that wrong choices or feelings of regret are inevitable no matter how big or mighty we are. So basically, y'all, you are not the only one who is making mistakes. No one is perfect. And sometimes, I think that old adage of misery loves company. No, I'm not asking you to get down into that self-pity. We're avoiding that. But you have to be compassionate because I promise you, whatever mistakes you are making or failures you think that you are failing, even if you're failing forward, you are not alone in this. Okay? And compassion comes from understanding that. One of the reasons we sometimes struggle with this element is because in our culture, it demands that we perceive ourselves as special or above average um, or the best or, you know, and we all know this is something that I struggle with greatly is often, you know, just grinding and, and going hard at everything. Um, but oftentimes that prompts a very self-centered process of social comparison to others. On page 66, Dr. Neff says, when we're deeply invested in seeing ourselves positively, we tend to feel threatened if others do it better than we do. <sighs> Sound familiar? Oh, that sounds like being triggered by exceptionalism to me. In fact, in her book, she gives a scenario about this woman named Liz. So Liz is this lady at this company and she's just gotten her end of year evaluation. She is so excited because it was a positive evaluation. She's even getting a 5% raise. She is so excited. She's going to go home to tell her husband they're going to celebrate. And then she's out in the parking lot and she hears another lady who's talking about her end of the year evaluation. And she referenced it by telling this other coworker that there was a quote, that there was a part of hers that said she was the quote, most promising new employee of the year and she was getting a 10% raise. Okay, so this immediately triggered Liz, right? So despite the fact that she had a great evaluation and she was getting a 5% raise because this, she hears that this other lady is getting a 10% raise and had that one, you know, best new employee of the year comment, Suddenly, that invalidates every bit of her accomplishment. She was triggered. Has this ever happened to you? Maybe not with an evaluation, but I want to know, where does this resonate with you? Now, as we look to improve in the area of human connectedness, we can start by remembering that because we are human, we are like everyone else, and we are all subject to human limitations. Because in recognizing the shared nature of our imperfection, self-compassion provides the sense of connectedness needed to truly thrive so that we can reach our full potential. All right, the third key is mindfulness. Now, according to Dr. Neff, mindfulness refers to the clear seeing and non-judgmental acceptance of what's occurring in the present moment. I don't know about you, but are you noticing that I am... We, there's a reoccurring theme here, being non-judgmental. So she goes on to say that to give ourselves compassion, we first have to recognize that we are suffering. We can't heal what we can't feel. Ooh, that was a good one. I'm going to say that one again. We can't 
heal what we can't feel. Man. So I'm going to go back to an earlier sentiment that in our culture, leaders are often expect to be quote unquote strong by being stoic and silent. Now y'all, we know what happens to our feelings when we're acting this way. Yep, that's right. We pack them down and we try not to fill them. So let me ask you this. How can we possibly begin to offer self-compassion if we don't acknowledge our feelings? Why is it that when a friend struggles or has a setback, we're there to comfort them? However, when we struggle or have the same setback, we immediately focus on the failure and we start to shame ourselves with that negative self-talk. Why is it that we can't have that same compassion for ourselves as we would with anyone else? Why is that? Okay, and it's not like just the big things, right? Sometimes it's the smaller things that trigger us as well. Okay, so what is it that triggers the emotional overreaction that we impose upon ourselves? Well, usually it's a subconscious attempt to avoid seeing ourselves as flawed or bad at something. I mean, how often do we create the illusion that things are actually worse than they are? Brene Brown often refers to this as the stories that we're telling ourselves. But if we can be mindful of our fears and anxiety, instead of over-identifying and over-criticizing them, then we can save ourselves from a whole lot of pain. You know, in addition to self-criticism, when we're not mindful, we often jump into a problem-solving mode. And don't get me wrong, as leaders, I know that problem-solving is often our specialty. But sometimes those problems trigger emotions that need your attention. Give yourself permission to tend to your emotional needs before you go right into solving that problem. Mindfulness brings us to our present moment and provides balanced awareness so that self-compassion can exist. Mindfulness also allows us to distinguish between those aspects of our experiences that we can change and those that we can't. The example that Dr. Neff gives is, is she says, now listen, if a heavy object falls on my foot, I can take the object off. Now that's something I can change, but the throbbing in my foot, that can't be changed, or at least not in the moment. If I accept that the event has happened, and maybe even throw in some humor, I will still feel the pain, but I'll remain relatively peaceful as it fades away. I won't add to my predicament by getting frustrated or agitated or kicking the offending object in anger. You laugh, but you know we've all done that. My calm state will also allow me to make a wise decision like wrapping my foot in an ice pack before it swells up. That's an important one. I'm going to be honest with you all. That is one that I struggle with. I spend way too much time on situations that I have no control over. When something happens that I feel I'm beating myself up over it, oftentimes I'm not in control. I can't change that. So one of the things that I am really working on is being mindful of what it is that I can change and have control over. And so one of the ways that we can be mindful of that is through the practice of meditation. 
I've personally been working on embedding meditation to my daily routine. In fact, it's the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning. Well, after turning off my alarm. Well, after hitting snooze a couple times and then turning off my alarm. I get up, I sit up in my bed, I get into kind of a, um, a comfortable position, I put in my AirPods, and I turn on my app and engage in a short meditation. Now, oftentimes people think that you have to meditate for like long periods of time. This is not true. And then I've even heard people say, but I don't know how to meditate. Well, guess what? I didn't either. I personally have recently started using the Calm app, C-A-L-M, but there are tons of other great apps. I've also used Insight Timer, I've tried Headspace, um, and I've gone on to a YouTube and searched. There are tons of guided meditations. So what I would encourage you to do is if you have not tried putting daily meditation into your routine, I encourage you to give it a try. As we're working on becoming more mindful, one of the other exercises that Dr. Neff discusses in her book is choosing one daily activity in your life that you want to practice being more mindful of. Now, this doesn't have to be a huge activity. This could be something as simple as brushing your teeth or driving to work or eating lunch. Whatever you choose, your goal is to bring focused awareness to the activity. Now, if you're brushing your teeth, Instead of doing what we all do, which is thinking about what you're going to do next or what clothes you're going to wear or what's on your agenda when you get to work, your goal is to focus on your actions in the present moment. For example, is the water still running? Do you spend longer brushing the left side or the right side? What sounds do you hear when you're brushing? What this does is this sharpens your attention skills and builds your mindfulness muscle. Now, as you continue to work on self-compassion, remember, you can approach it from three different ways. You can, one, give yourself kindness and care. You can, two, remind yourself that encouraging pain is part of the shared human experience. Or you can, three, hold your thoughts and emotions in a mindful awareness. But remember, self-compassion is a precious gift. Remember, We don't need others to respond with care and compassion in order for us to feel worthy of love. We don't need to look outside of ourselves for acceptance and security that we crave. Now, this is not to say that we don't need other people. Of course we do. But who is in the best position to know how you really feel underneath that cheerful facade? Who is most likely to know the full extent of the pain that you fear and face? To know what you need the most? Who is the only person who is available in your life 24-7 to provide you with the care and kindness that you need. That's right. That's you. So, as you go about your week, I encourage you to enter self-care through one of the pathways that we discussed this week. If you've been following along this season, then odds are you may be already practicing a mantra for your new habits. You might be setting boundaries for those habits. You might be working on speaking more kindly to yourself. You might be using that new journal daily. Well, this week, I challenge you to try to add two to five minutes of mindfulness to each day and then check in with me by sending me a message on Twitter and let me know how it's going. I need you to remember, this work is a process. And what I have noticed is that people, especially at the beginning of the new year, they have no problem setting goals around working out their physical body. Well, I encourage you to give that same level of awareness and importance to working out your emotional self.
and then let me know how you're doing. If you've enjoyed this episode, the core components of self-compassion, which ones do you possess? Please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Now, if this is your first episode or you've not listened to any of the other seasons, I'd love to know what you think. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts to get more automatic episode updates for Be the Leader You Deserved. In fact, do it right now. And don't forget to like and follow me on Twitter to get more frequent updates and quotes and inspiration to carry you through the week. I also post on my personal account, so follow me and let's connect. And finally, please take a minute to leave an honest review and rating on Apple Podcast. They really do help me out when it comes to the ranking of the show, and I make it a point to read every single one of the reviews that I get. All right, leaders, have a fantastic week. I know that you are working on self-compassion, and I can't wait to hear more about it. And while you're doing that, don't forget to ask yourself, am I the leader I deserve, and what am I doing about it?